Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 621 with Steve Glaveski. Steve is sharing how you can banish the habits that waste a bundle of your times. You'll learn one, why we often feel like we're not getting anything done. Two, the simplest way to keep others from stealing your time. And three, why we achieve more when we have less time. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP621 and you'll find those goods there. Now here's Steve's story. Steve Glaveski is an entrepreneur, author, and podcast host whose mission is to unlock the latent potential of people so they can create more impact for humanity and lead more fulfilling lives. Steve is CEO of Collective Campus, an innovation accelerator based in Melbourne and Singapore, and founder of Lemonade Stand, a children's entrepreneurship program and now SaaS platform that has been delivered to kids across Australia and Singapore. Steve is also the author of Employee to Entrepreneur, How to Earn Your Freedom and Do Work That Matters, the children's picture book Lemonade Stand, From Idea to Entrepreneur and the newly released Time Rich. Steve hosts the Future Squared podcast. His work has been featured in Harvard Business Review, The Wall Street Journal, Forbes, The Australian Financial Review, Tech in Asia, and numerous other outlets. Big thanks to Steve for sharing his wisdom with us and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Steve, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Pete. Well, I'm excited to dig into your wisdom, but the first we need to hear about your relationship with heavy metal and performance in a tribute band. <laughs> well, that's, that's a great question. Great, great place to start this. Well, I always say that you've got to cultivate a positive relationship with adversity. Put yourself in all sorts of uncomfortable places and then everything just becomes easier so one of the those uncomfortable places for me was <laughs> wearing a zebra print pants a snake skin cowboy hat and makeup in an 80s metal tribute band called rat poison that's r-a-t-t paying homage to the band rat many many years ago now i think i was about 21 at the time and uh, look, still a big heavy metal fan, and that was a, a great experience, although I do recall snapping a string at that particular performance and spending about 10 minutes trying to fix my guitar while the band played without me. So uh, trial by fire. But uh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's my heavy metal story, Pete. Mm -hmm. And now you said that this was an uncomfortable position, so you didn't seek this out? It was thrust upon you? <laughs> no, look, I joke. <laughs> I, I was looking for a good way to introduce that, but ultimately... 
I loved it. <laughs> like it was a lot of fun. Uh, I mean, looking back now, those photos, they can be used to incriminate me or can be used against me, but I proudly uh, have them up on my Facebook account. So if people want to look for that photo, they can find it on my, on my Facebook profile. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, well, thank you. That sounds like a, a rich use of time. How's that for a forced segue? <laughs> Your book's called Time Rich, which sounds like an awesome thing I'd like to be. Uh, can you tell us, what, is, what does it mean to be time rich? Really means living life according to your values. Uh, it's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily mean that you wake up in the morning and you, know, you spend all day in your underwear uh, watching Netflix. It really comes back to having the time to invest your hours, your very few hours into things that give you a more rewarding experience of life. So for some people, that might be working longer hours. Uh, for some people, it might be spending more time with family. But ultimately, I think it comes back to how you choose to spend those hours and spending those hours on high-value activities. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds like the ideal. Can you tell us kind of what's, what's the state of affairs right now in terms of how much of us, uh, how many of us really do that? Very few of us do that. I think for typical person now is spending about 12 hours a day staring at screens. Uh, that's actually gone up since the pandemic just because we find ourselves watching more Netflix and, uh, and YouTube and, and, and whatnot. But if you look at what we're spending our time doing with those screens, particularly now when it comes to uh, work, people's way of work, we're effectively taking what we did in the office, which was 50 to 60 interruptions a day which was 40 to 50 notifications, push notifications popping up on our screen all day long, which was responding to emails within five minutes of them being received, uh, checking email every six minutes. We've taken that and we've just put it all online. Like instead of a one hour face-to-face meeting, it's a one hour Zoom call. Instead of taps on the shoulder all day long, it's a Slack message. And it's actually worse now because we've got the Slack channel or the Microsoft Teams channel up all day long and the red light's always going off, new notification. So we're bouncing back into that all day long. And what that does for us in terms of our focus, effectively, we're paying a cognitive switching penalty because every time we switch tasks, it can take us up to 23 minutes to get back in the zone. And you know, when we're in the zone, when we cultivate the ability to get into flow, we're about five times more productive. You know, When we're totally immersed on one task, the rest of the world seems to fade away and the hours just fly by, we're way more productive. But we're in this state of hyper-responsiveness where nothing gets done and we can be busy, 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 quote unquote, all day long, but have very little to show for it come the end of the day. And just to close the loop on your question, uh, Gallup ran a study last year, which found that 85% of people are either disengaged or not engaged by their work. So only 15% of us are engaged by our work, which comes back to these organizational cultures where either we're not aligned with the values of the organization or we're just not given a sense of control to actually get stuff done because we're spending all day long in meetings, we're being interrupted all day long, and you know we're glorifying things like inbox zero, which demonstrates that we're really good at responding to other people's demands on our time at the expense of our own priorities. So my sense is that very, very few people are doing the utmost with what little time they're given. And now that 23-minute stat, I think that sounds familiar, like the Microsoft study with email. Is that what that comes from there? Uh, that actually comes from an organization called Advanced Brain Monitoring uh, in the United States who, who ran a study on the flow state. Uh, it also echoes a study that McKinsey ran, a 10-year study around high executives where they found that when these executives are in the flow state, they're up to five times more productive. There's also another study that Advanced Brain Monitoring ran where they found that 
even micro task switches. So a notification pops up on your smartphone and you see it, but you don't tap on it. You just notice it. Mm-hmm. That one-tenth of a second micro task switch over the course of a day, they've found that that can add up to about a 40% productivity loss because even if you're in flow and you notice that, that's enough to kind of take you out of flow and it's going to take you time to get back in. Not only does it compromise our productivity, but this constant sort of recalibrating our minds around a different thing, it can leave us exhausted as well. So we can find that by, say, 1 p.m., we're, we're feeling spent just because we've spent the first four, five hours of our day just shuffling between browser windows madly instead of just focusing on that one high-value activity. Oh, well, this is, this is quite fascinating because you know, when you said 23 minutes, I thought, oh, that sounds like the 24 minutes associated with the, the Microsoft email study, but it's a completely different study which arrived at a very similar number, which, which I find intriguing and validating. So mm. can you share with us some details on, on what was going on in, in terms of how we tested that and got to that 23-minute figure? So they basically got a number of control groups and... It required a little bit of objective feedback uh, in terms of the interruption and how they got back to it. So they would look at the performance of, say, marksmen who were able to get into flow in terms of how well they hit the bullseye. Hmm. And what would happen was they would leave them be to just, say, extended stretches of time of, say, 30 to 60 minutes to just work on their craft And they performed at a much higher level than when they had been, say, interrupted or when someone came over and had a quick conversation with them. And then they'd look at the first, say, five to 10 minutes thereafter, as opposed to, say, 20, 30, 40 minutes Mm -hmm. thereafter, when they'd had more time to just really hone in and get in the zone. And it's kind of the same as, say, you might find if you meditate, uh, the first two or three minutes, there's a lot of monkey mind going on, but then five, 10, 15, 20 minutes in, a lot of that stuff kind of starts to fade away and you really get into your element. So it, They ran these studies across a number of different fields where they basically took someone's performance shortly after an interruption and then compared it to their performance 20, 30 minutes in. And there was a vast difference in in that. And then after they'd been interrupted, yeah, how long does it take them to get their performance up to that sort of optimal level? Yeah. Okay. Well, so, so there we have it. I mean, it seems like there's plenty at stake here in terms of you, you, whether or not you're engaged at work, whether or not you're having fun, whether or not you're, you're doing well, <laughs> you know, you're executing it at a high level and, and just sort of ultimately getting more stuff done during the course of the day with, in terms of whether we are in flow and, and doing things well in a time-rich fashion versus kind of just jumping and being scared all over the place with notifications and emails and interruptions mm. in a time-poor fashion. So tell me, what are the best interventions, super habits, practices, tips, and tricks for those of us who want to cut out the time poor behavior and and be all the more time rich? Sure. So good uh, visual mnemonic that will help your audience is uh, tire. So I say when it comes to our own personal productivity, we're carrying around spare tires, which effectively slow us down. So the T stands for task switching. So best thing you can do there, actionable step is turn off your notifications. That's a really easy one. But the second one is really cultivating the ability to focus on one thing for extended periods of time. So using something like a a freedom app or a block site to block Twitter, to block these apps that you're inclined to jump into, and then just, yeah, let me just quickly check my notifications. And that can send you down a Twitter rabbit hole for half an hour. The other thing there is also the browser windows. Like rather than having 20 browser windows open, just focus on one. So these are like some actionable things you can do in terms of that environment. And then the other thing I would do on task switching is It's like cultivating any habit. Like if you're not used to going to the gym, it can take you a while to get into that. 
but cultivating the ability to sit still on one task for 30 to 60 minutes without switching, that also takes effort. So you might want to start with, say, 15 minutes and work your way up. Environment design is important too. If you want to build new habits, uh, cultivating an environment where it's easy to build that new habit, where it's easier to break bad ones as well. So I've touched on a couple of them there, but also if I have my phone right next to my desk and I was going to reach for it, but I don't have it here, which speaks to what I'm trying to communicate, (laughs) it's much easier for me to pick up that phone and just check Instagram quickly and do things like that. So whatever you can do to build an environment free of distraction, do that. And then the second piece on building- If I may, before we jump into the eye of of tire, so- this this 30 to 60 minutes of of not switching and you say that could be hard we might need to start with 15 uh, i think maybe it might be beneficial to paint a picture in terms mm-hmm. of when we say not switching i have a feeling you have a higher standard of this than most of us <laughs> so can you give us an example of when you say okay hey for the next 15 30 60 minutes i'm doing this and only this uh, what could be some examples? And, and then what are, we, what are we not doing? We're not looking at any notification or ding or beep or buzz whatsoever or, or visiting any place. Paint a picture for us. Yeah, definitely. So look, I, I'm a writer, so I spend a hell of a lot of time staring at my Google Docs module. And if I am writing a thousand word article, I am not checking my phone. I am not checking other websites. I'm, there are notif- no notifications popping up on my screen. I'm focusing purely on the task of writing. Now, there may be, while I'm writing, I might need, say, a reference of some kind to help me elaborate on things, but I'm going to go through one round first. So if there is a reference that I'm looking for, I might just make a note of that in the article and write reference, highlight it in yellow, and keep on going. Because if I stop every 50 words to seek out references, that can slow things down. I want to write it first and then go off and do those other things because it's... In a world of 4 million blog posts being published every day, it's so easy for us to get stuck in content rabbit holes. And again, we need to be honest with ourselves because it can be easy to conflate doing stuff with being productive because ultimately we derive a lot of self-worth from our work, but we need to make sure that we're deriving that self-worth from you know productive activities rather than just stuff that makes us feel, feel busy. So that's essentially my definition of not task switching, which is really focusing on not just the one task, but also what's the task within the task because writing could be writing, could be researching, uh, could be fact-checking. There are different elements to that value chain of writing, but focusing on that one task within the value chain of writing at a time. Oh, yeah, I really like that a lot, the, the task within the task. Mm. And then I guess that's what gets, where things get tricky is when you need to get something else to do the thing you're doing, whether it's inside your email or whether it's inside a reference or whether it's inside your your phone text message history that that's what that's what trips me up is in terms of like oh i need to get this thing in order to finish this Mm -hmm. what i'm doing but then as i go to that other place i'm besieged with all the other stuff (laughs) and i hate it how do i fix it (laughs) yeah 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 so there are that's a great great question and in some cases you might get to a point where look it's a it's a dead end and i need to jump into my email to get this widget Uh, to get this attachment, whatever it is, to continue with my work. So, of course, you need to do that. Now, I would say that in some cases, there are tools that exist. So, for example, if I need to quickly write an email, but I don't want to be besieged by all of my new incoming emails, well, there's widgets like or plugins, rather, like Google Chrome's Compose Email plugin, which will just open the Compose Email window, so that way I spare myself seeing my inbox. Or it might be that, 
you know, if I'm jumping into my inbox to get an attachment, well, in that case, I might see those other things coming in. So at the same time, I think it comes back to building that muscle and cultivating the ability to see, to be like, hey, I see you, I see you email, but right now I'm working on this other thing and I'll get back to you later. So that comes back to nothing new. I mean, people have talked about batching before, but really batching the checking of email to say three times a day, um, which something is something I talk about in the book where studies showed that once people check email more than three times a day, their sort of emotional well-being starts to fall off with it. Like There was like an inverse correlation. The more times you check email throughout the day and how good you feel uh, kind of tapers off. So batching mm. that, whether it's morning, midday, end of the day, and just having that time specifically for checking and responding to those emails is better than sporadically doing it throughout the day. Now, there's probably all sorts of reasons why people feel worse off when they do that. It might be just that they're spending all day on shallow level tasks. They're not getting any high value work done. And that could be part of it. It's kind of like, you know, Netflix is all well and good, but if you spend four hours binging a, a TV series, you feel terrible at the end of it. Like it's just shallow level work. You're, you get into sort of a vegetative state and can it can be that that would also happen with our, with our email as well. All right. Well, so let, let's hear what the I is in Tyre. Uh, so I is actually why. So we're going with that definition. So Tyre, but basically, uh, so the Roman philosopher Seneca once said that people are frugal when it comes to guarding their personal property, but not so when it comes to their time, which is the one thing which is that it is right to be stingy with because time, unlike money, cannot be earned back once you spend it. So why essentially stands for yes. You know, saying yes to all sorts of demands on our time, oftentimes at the expense of our own thing, because as human beings, we have a tendency, well, not a tendency, we, we have a predisposition to wanting to be liked. So if someone requests something of us, we say yes. If someone sends us a meeting request, in most organizations, it's expected that you will say yes. And that if you say no, well, that's going to create a bit of a tension there between you and that person that invited you. But every time you say yes to something, you're, you're saying no to everything else. So there is a lot of narrative, if you will, in particularly the startup ecosystem where they say, you know, you say yes to everything, it creates serendipity. And that's true. But at the same time, you're saying yes to one thing and you're saying no to everything else. So being more diligent about what we say yes to and making sure that that stuff really aligns with our goals is going to help us get close to those goals. But the one other thing that I would say on that is when it comes to meetings, for example, at Basecamp, if you want to book a meeting in someone else's calendar, you just can't do that. You need to sell the meeting to them. You need to, like, why is their contribution going to be uh, valuable at this meeting. Whereas in many organizations, there is just this tendency to just call every man, woman, and their dog to a meeting. And you have like 10 people sitting around a Zoom call nowadays when really you might only need two or three people to be there. One example I can talk of there is our Dominic Price, who is the resident work futurist at Atlassian. So he uses this really useful visual of boomerang and stick. So for so long, he's Calendar was basically back-to-back -back meetings all day long, all week long. And after a while, I said, look, I can't keep working like this. I can't work on my own goals. And I'm just not finding that my time is really optimized attending all of these meetings. So we started saying no. And two-thirds of those meetings didn't come back. So they were effectively sticks. He sent back the meeting rejection, didn't come back. One-third did, and he called them boomerangs. So it might be that two-thirds of the meetings that you're attending yourself, if, particularly if you work at a larger organization, could be proverbial boomerangs, proverbial sticks, if you will. And just by saying no, you might save, as was the case with Dominic Price, 15 hours a week that you can reinvest into your own stuff as well. Well, well that, that's really inspiring because I think you said 
perfectly earlier, like, yes, there's this fear associated with, oh, if I say no to this meeting request, I'm going to create some, some friction, some tension. And, and it sounds like that was not the case for Dominique. It was just like, no, I was like, oh, okay. You know, well, I, I don't know, maybe they were furious, but it, it sounds like they were just fine with it. It's like, all right, that's fine. And then the one third was like, no, seriously, I really need you. It's like, all yeah, right, then. Exactly. And, and so that's a pretty simple filter then it, right there. And, and do you have any pro tips on how we'd recommend saying that no? Yeah, definitely. So rather than just saying, no, I will not attend your meeting. It's not of value to me. It comes back to, you know, human psychology, uh, make, you know, trying to be, trying to empathize with that person, make sure that they understand your own position as well and, and say, look, I'm currently working on X, Y, Z. It's a high priority for me. I need to get it done by, by then. I don't think that my presence at this meeting will be of value, but if there's anything I can share that you think is, is valuable, I'm happy to email that along. If you think for whatever reason that I absolutely have to be at this meeting, uh, let me know why and I'll, I'll come along. So it, it's just about just, you know, I suppose taking the edges off somewhat and, and just being human with your rejection. Uh, it's, it's mm-hmm. the same with anything. And, you know, even last week I had organized for someone to appear on my podcast and one of my, in line with this philosophy of not saying yes to everything, you know, I had them come back and say, oh, you know, our AV guy wants to set up a 30 minute or 15 minute test call. Uh, and, you know, we're a small team with only so many resources and I don't do test calls with anyone. So I went back to them and said, look, I appreciate that. I've never had any issues with, with AV. We've got a good setup, published 400 podcast episodes. I have a small team and we're very diligent about what we say yes to, because if we say yes to one thing, we might find ourselves saying yes to everything and not have any time to focus on our goals. Hope you understand. And, and they were completely fine with that. They responded saying, yep, totally understand. And it's just about doing it that way rather than just saying no off the bat. But ultimately, what's better than that is just getting to a point where your organization has a culture where you're not expected to say yes to things. And the people, the onus is with the people requesting the meeting to say mm-hmm. why you need to be there to spare you from having to say no in a very sort of diligent way. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And and if there's are superior solutions, like I think, I don't know what it was called, it was like onlinevoicerecorder.com or something like that. Mm-hmm. Is is something I've sent people to in that very context in terms of like you see if it's recognizing your microphone and if you record it if it sounds good and then if it does then that's really the hard part so yeah. so we'll be all set by the time yeah. we're meeting up here so that's great and then it's probably better for them too in terms of they don't feel embarrassed like oh, oh I'm, I'm sorry Steve uh oh let me, let me let me try to unplug it and then uh, refresh and uh sorry you know like okay yeah, you can yeah, play yeah. with it on your own and uh with no self-consciousness so everyone's better off okay so we got the T we got the Y what's the R uh, residual work. So many of your audience will be familiar with uh, Forrest Gump. And there's this classic scene in Forrest Gump where he's playing college football and he's running towards the end zone. He gets there, he's got the touchdown, and he just keeps on running right into the change rooms. He takes out one of the band members on his way there. And this is essentially how we tend to approach a lot of our work, uh, where we we don't stop at the point of diminishing returns. We just keep on going. And so we might spend, say, four hours putting together a sales presentation, but then we might spend another four hours tweaking it, working with the formatting, making it absolutely quote-unquote perfect um, at the expense of just saying, okay, we've we've created most of the value. Let's stop. Let's move on to something else. Um, And so high performers tend to have a good relationship with that point of diminishing returns. And this is something that I find myself doing sometimes as well. And it's 
often it comes back to doing something that's familiar, that's comfortable, and that gives us that sense of being busy again at the expense of starting something new. Because when it comes to switching and starting a task fresh, something that's perhaps somewhat challenging, uh, our brain needs to recalibrate around that. It's like staring at a blank page. Uh, you can get writer's block or coder's block or whatever block uh, is associated with your work. And the way around that, again, comes back to just breaking that up to its smallest possible unit and getting started on that um, and getting those wheels rolling because that comes back to Isaac Newton and his first law of motion. You know, An object at rest stays at rest. An object in motion stays in motion, which effectively means that once that ball is rolling, the amount of energy you need to apply to keep it rolling is much less than what's required to get it started in the first place. So when you do find that you are at that point of diminishing returns, Stop, maybe go for a 20-minute walk because that helps us release some BDNF, um, brain-derived neutrophic factor, uh, which is like our caveman brain sensing movement as a fight-or-flight moment. And that helps us focus. So taking that walk, coming back, and starting on that fresh task, breaking it down to its smallest requisite part, getting that ball in motion. And once it's in motion, it's so much easier to do that. And the benefit of this is we're not talking about this over one day, but if you do that over, say, 100 days, you've saved yourself countless hours just kind of tweaking stuff, inconsequential activities that you do on a task long after it's been done. And you've actually spent a lot more time working on high value activities. So the compounding interest benefit, if you will, over long periods of time is significant. And so what are some telltale signs that you are approaching or have hit or have passed the, the, this point of diminishing returns? You've got to be objective based on your own work. So it's it's Hard to answer that without knowing the kind of work that people are, are working on. Like I know myself that if I am getting into that state of just doing stuff because it's comfortable, because it's easier than moving on to something else, I have a pretty good relationship with that. Like, yes, there is value in, say, writing an article and then going over it, making sure it's, it's spell-checked and it sounds good and everything else. But once you've done that once or twice, you might just find yourself scrolling up and down and, and just looking at it ad infinitum and that's perhaps the point where you want to move on and go to something else because it really depends on the individual individual task at hand. I can't think of a perfect way that we would say, okay, here's a telltale sign around when you have hit that point of diminishing returns. Yeah, I think that's... I'm picking up what you're putting down there with regard to you kind of know it when you see it and feel yeah. it with regard to has anything useful happened here in a while like, like for me i th find it it often occurs like maybe i was in a good groove for like 90 minutes plus mm. and then I'm, I'm still working but it's it is more of a coasting at that point than a than a, a, a creating new stuff yeah. and it's like my brain is tired but i haven't yet acknowledged that my brain is tired yeah you know you might find yourself if you work in social media you might spend a bit of time putting together some content and then you'll go off and you'll publish it and then you might just find that you're spending too much time refreshing the screen and seeing what kind of engagement you're getting mm -hmm. now that's you know past the point of diminishing returns people might say people who work in social media will say well that's part of my job but like the email you can batch that you don't need to be doing that refreshing the page every five minutes and then just while you're there checking out some of the other uh, things that have been posted, going into your analytics and doing all these little inconsequential things that perhaps you should be batching once a day um, and then moving on to another activity. So 
again, that comes back to that sort of the value chain of work. You know, what is the nature of your work? What's the value chain even within a task? And batching that stuff rather than finding yourself kind of just in this hamster on a wheel sort of mode. And, you know, the value in that case was creating the content, publishing it, and that's it. But refreshing the page at infinitum, that obviously uh, isn't a high value activity. Yeah, well, and, and I think you're really nailing something there with regard to when there's real time stuff happening. Mm. It's funny we're, we're recording this on a, a election day in the U.S. You're yeah. in Australia, and <laughs> so there's a lot of refreshing, I think, going on <laughs> in a lot of places to see what, what what's the news, what what are the numbers, and how are things uh, potentially unfolding. But I, I found that that is a temptation. Like if I've done when I've done my listener surveys, you know, I want I, I say, ooh, we, I refresh. Ooh, we got two more. We got two more. You know, what, what do mm-hmm. they say? What do they say? Mm-hmm. Oh, they love the show. Great. You know, they say, oh, we have three more. You know, so th- there's that real time temptation. I think maybe people who, if they're doing trading in the financial markets as, as well, yeah. And so then, I, I think as I'm thinking about this real time, it, it kind of gets back to you know, hey, what am I trying to accomplish in this moment? And there may be a great reason to say, okay, hey, I just launched the survey and I, I definitely, I want to see, you know, the first five, 10 results right away to see if maybe I had a really unclear question and, mm-hmm. uh, and folks are, are not actually giving me answers that are, are what I'm after or, or they're confused or skipping it. So yeah, I, I do want to check maybe repeatedly in the early moments to do a quick correction and make sure I don't mm-hmm. let it run for five days and get 200 responses that are not what I wanted because I was unclear with my question. So, so in a way, I think that that's, that's super helpful to do that refresh. You're, you're, it's not a diminishing return. It's a, it's a great return. But there's other, other times it's just like, yeah, it's almost like you go into a state of duh, refresh anymore. You know, it, it's yeah. like there's less life and juice and drive and goal domination going on in terms of how it feels in my psyche. Yeah. Which, which comes back to what I was saying earlier, like when you know, when you see it essentially, when it comes to that point of diminishing returns and what you're talking about there is so valid as well. You know, I'm not a big fan of absolutes and all or nothing type of advice or guidance on anything. I I feel like most things in life exist on like an inverted U, like stress as well. Like no stress is not a really good space. I mean, some stress actually helps us get to that point of optimal performance. So that inverted U, you want to look for that space at the very top of the inverted U or the bell curve, essentially. Or an N. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah lowercase uh, Whatever the case it is, a lowercase N. Depending on your font. But then you've, got, then you've got two like peaks, right? So, But essentially finding that space. So yes, maybe check it for a little bit, get the feedback you need. It's the same with you know, running an ad. You want to run an ad and you want to see that it's performing in the early stages. And if not, you want to like tweak the ad and, and make sure that you're getting a better you know, click rate, for example, that you're reaching the right people, whatever the case is. But if you're sitting there refreshing the, the ad all day long, oh, a cost per click has gone down a little bit. Oh, we got a few more clicks now. Like that is obviously the point where you're like, okay, let's move on to something else. Okay. So we got the T, the Y, the R, and the E. So the E essentially... I suppose dovetails off something we touched on, which was the path of least effort. So human beings biologically were predisposed to taking the path of least effort. I mean, that comes back to uh, evolutionary wiring, whereby tens of thousands of years ago, when we were naked running around the African savannah, we didn't know where our food would come from. And so we needed to conserve energy for extended periods of time in case we needed to hunt out some prey or evade some predators. This now shows up in our work, when we sit down to our desks and we take that path of least effort, checking Twitter, LinkedIn, and so on, and we already touched on some of the ways to 
uh, circumvent that by breaking things down to the residual parts, environment design, and cultivating the ability to get stuck on the most difficult task, perhaps first thing in the morning or first thing in the afternoon, whenever it is, you tend to do your best work, uh, which is something we touched on, on the book in the book as well, uh, which is that about 50% of people are actually night owls, which means they do their best work 10 hours after waking. Otherwise, if you try and get a night owl to work an hour after waking, they actually suffer from a form of social jet lag, which can also predispose them to developing anxiety and depression over the longer term. So this whole idea of getting people to the office at, say, 9 a.m., getting them out of bed at 7, particularly if they're night owls, it's really detrimental to, to their health, but not only their health, but their ability to perform at a high level. So you know, when you think about the fact that about 50% of the population, night owls, like they have these preferred sleeping patterns, but they're forced to get to work early. I think um, it's encouraging to see that now with the move to remote work at scale, hopefully more organizations uh, stay that way. It, it does create the conditions to move to more asynchronous uh, communication uh, where we're not expecting real-time responses, where we're not conflating presence with productivity and people aren't expected to be on Slack all day long and expected to all be on these back-to-back Zoom calls. It does give people the ability to design days as it best suits them, as it best suits their biological predisposition, the the, the realities of their their lives, their families, and everything else, so that they can get work when it best suits them. Um, and ultimately, that benefits everyone. It also benefits the organizations because if you can create those types of cultures, uh, it also is a compelling you know, recruitment tool because people want to work at places where they can create their own days uh, as it best suits them, but also work in organizations where they can actually get stuff done and not be bogged down by you know, bucket loads of process and policy that just gives them no sense of control or agency over their work. Right. Well said. Well, well so the, I also know you've got a, a take on the eight-hour workday. Lay it on us. Is our shorter workdays better and why? Sure. So shorter workdays, there is no yes or no answer. Uh, ultimately, the six-hour workday experiment uh, was something we ran two and a half years ago, and I wrote an article about this for Harvard Business Review called The Case for the Six-Hour Workday. And what you find is when you have a shorter workday, if you're an organization that has a lot of bloat, uh, that isn't intentional about how it goes about creating value, a uh, shorter workday forces you to focus on high-value activities. It's a forcing function. So one, it will force you to, say, automate and outsource rudimentary, process-oriented, lower-risk activities so that your people aren't doing that. Two, it will force you to focus on, say, high-value tasks. So applying the Pareto principle, focusing in on those 20% of tasks that create the majority of the value rather than just focusing on those low-value tasks that feel good, that you've done because you've always done them before, but don't really move the needle forward. It forces people to cultivate the flow state, to get better at getting into that you know, deep work state, to do away with those notifications, those distractions, and those meetings that inhibit our ability to do our best work. So shorter workday will help you in that regard. So if you do have a lot of bloat and you're working at eight-hour workdays and you come back to six, you will find more productivity. Now, uh, over the past couple of years, there's been a trend as well to four-day work weeks. We saw Microsoft Japan run a four-day work week and they suggested that their productivity improved by 40%. Now, me personally, I would argue that five shorter workdays is better than, say, four longer ones because if you have created this environment and culture where people can get into flow and people can do that for say the the max amount of time which is about four hours a day maybe five then 
if you're keeping them there for, say, eight hours for four days a week, that suggests that maybe there's two or three hours of, of waste there uh, rather than running, say, five days at four or five hours a day, which I think is more beneficial if people are spending that time in flow. Now, again, there's something to be said uh, about not all hours will be in flow. Like, for example, you may have to have some meetings. There is collaboration that's required at organizations. There are things that need to get done where you're just not working in isolation. So that's why adding maybe a couple of hours to that workday, so it's six hours rather than just four, I think I think makes sense. Okay. And you mentioned uh, automation and outsourcing. Do you have any favorite tools or services or, or yeah. tricks here? Yeah, look, I, I think uh, Zapier for me is prob- probably one of the most powerful ones. So Zapier or IFTTT, which stands for if this, then that. So these tools will basically help different tools speak to each other. So recently during the pandemic, I spun off a media company called No Filter. And one thing we found was taking up a lot of time was getting people that we had paid to take Google Docs uh, that our writers had developed, take them, copy them, paste them into our CMS and publish that. So we created a very simple automation between, say, a web HTML form and our CMS so that our writers would just plug the content right into the HTML form, and that would get picked up by Zapier and come into our CMS. So then us as editors, we just jump into that CMS and we just need to publish it, or we might need to just make some changes if we feel like the content's not good enough or just delete it if it's crap, right? But that saves us a lot of time copying and pasting, but it also meant that we could operate at scale because then we could reach out to a lot of different writers and say, hey, if you want to write for us, just you know, here's here's uh, the online form. You can republish some of your old blog posts too, and we'll link back to that. And we'll give you, you know, the canonical links and whatnot. And that just helps us make the process a lot more seamless. Um, so that's one. Another example is tools like Repurpose, uh, which help you effectively repurpose content for different platforms. So you can think about something like recording a Facebook Live video and then using a combination of tools like Zapier, Repurpose, uh, Recurpost, for example, where that Facebook Live video could get turned into a transcribed blog post, an audiogram, a YouTube video, and social media posts, you know, with the click of a button, essentially. Now, again, inverted U, sometimes there is an element of personalization that can get missed with that, but these tools are slowly getting better and better. But just by recording that Facebook Live video, you could have all these other forms of content basically at the click of a button. And that just means that we're creating a lot more content, we can reach larger audiences, and it saves us a hell of a lot of time in trying to manually create different versions of that content ourselves. All right. Well, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? There are a couple. Another couple of tools people might want to look out for uh, Web Merge and Airtable. Um, so, you know, I mentioned earlier sales presentations. Uh, we used Airtable to automate our sales proposal generation, right? So rather than having to manually seek out, hey, where's that proposal we prepared for that client about six months ago, getting that PowerPoint or Keynote, and then manually putting that together, we've created this tool where all we do is plug in the prospect's name, their logo, and choose the color scheme, and also just choose what products they're actually interested in. And this will spit out a a presentation um, that we might spend five, 10 minutes customizing. And over the course of the year, that also saves us a bunch of time uh, when it comes to you know, just automating these rudimentary process-oriented tasks. So I would challenge people that whatever task you're currently working on, like whether it's customer service, sales, marketing, 
testing, administrative tasks, like so many things can be automated and the cost of doing so is not high. But a lot of people will say things like, yeah, but I haven't got time or or money to do that. But that's kind of ironic because over the long term, you actually end up spending a hell of a lot more time and money trying to do it yourself rather than just spending that time up front, which will pay itself back in orders of magnitude. Oh yeah, that's what I found. It's like it's not so much that you don't have time; it's just that it's kind of hard and, and tiring to figure it out and execute it and set it up. But once you do, yeah, I've had many instances of set up a system and a process with a combination of training someone to do something and software doing something and bring them together. And I spend two hours, and it saves me forty hours. And mm-hmm. that I mean, there's not a lot of twenty to one returns to be had in, in your investments. But when it comes to time and and, and automation outsourcing. There's many, many to be done. Many, many. Uh, one quick one there, just on you know, that 20 to one. If you look at things like you know, five minute tasks done five times a day, like if you just outsource that task or automate it, that saves people something like 15 days over the course of the year. Like if you extrapolate that five minutes out and that's just that five minutes, like we're not even accounting for the fact that you need to stop what you're doing to do that task and then come back to what you were doing. So the task, which, task switching as well. So it doesn't need to be a, you know, big task to save a lot of time. But if it's a small task that you're doing often, like even a five-minute task, you know, think about outsourcing that as well. All right. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I'm a big fan of Marcus Aurelius's meditations. And one of the quotes in this book was, you, know, you have power over your mind, not external events. Realize this and you will find strength. So essentially, I think that navigating life in that way where you know things will happen to you that perhaps aren't pleasant, things won't go your way. You might pursue business and perhaps it doesn't work out, but you have control over your mind and how you choose to interpret and respond to these things. Just by having that sort of mindset, it just does, it just opens you up to trying things where you might fail and you might not be good because so many of us suffer from a sense of paralysis when we're scared that things will not work out our way. And you know, I've tried to cultivate that adversity in my life just by doing things that scare me. Like last year, I, I hit the stand-up comedy open mic circuit here in Melbourne and I did five shows and it was, you know, I've done keynotes and things of that persuasion in front of you know, hundreds of people, but getting up in front of a crowd of 10 in a smoky back alley bar somewhere and trying to make them laugh, man, that's scary. Doing these things just, I find, optimize not only your life, but just predispose you to taking the, that path of more effort rather than the path of least effort. And oftentimes, even if you fail, you end up in a much better place. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? One that I pulled out during my uh, research for, for the book Time Rich was around some, a group of scientists that, so there was three control groups. So one was working 20 hours a week, one was working 35 hours a week, and the third was working 60 hours a week. And what they found was that the group that was working 20 hours a week was twice as productive as the 35-hour-a-week group, and the 60-hour-a-week group was the least productive of all, which they found came back to the fact that the more hours these groups had, one, they spent it on non-consequential tasks, but two, they also had less time to rest and rejuvenate and come back as the best version of themselves. So that's why the 60-hour-a-week group were just the least productive of all. So that comes back to something that I talk about in the book, which is burnout. Burnout, essentially, where that comes from is the fact that us as human beings, you know, we might be present on a Zoom call or in the office, but if we're burnt out, uh, we're only physically present on the inside. We're a shadow of our former selves, and that's kind of like a, a house that's been ravaged by a house fire. 
it might still be standing, but if you go inside, everything's just been burnt out to a crisp. So that's a, an interesting study that I think validates some of these thinking around shorter workdays and focusing on high value activities rather than just conflating hours with output uh, as we might have, say, on the factory room floors of the, of the industrial revolution. Mm-hmm. And how about a favorite book? For now, I'm going to say Ray Dalio's Principles, just because he is someone who you know, has been in the trenches for a number of decades in, in the funds management space. You know, his, his initial business failed. He effectively came up with ways to codify decision-making based on what's worked in the past, but also adaptive decision-making in a way where he will update his worldview based on new evidence that comes to light, which is the core of the scientific method. But just lots of principles in there, which I think help us navigate not just business and life, for example, multi-order thinking. So not just thinking about what's the benefit of making this decision now, but what are the consequences? You know, what, what are the second, third, fourth order consequences of this? So it's just chock full of these principles that effectively help us better navigate life, essentially. And how about a favorite tool that you use to be awesome at your job? It's really about a quadrant that I draw up on, on, on a whiteboard once every quarter. So it's not a, not a fancy like tech tool or anything like that, but I just draw up this quadrant and I just write in each corner, start, stop, more, less. And so I'll do this with my business. I'll look at what should we start doing, stop doing, do, do more, do less. And I'll apply this to sales techniques, uh, marketing channels, products we're selling, customers, geographies we're targeting, all that sort of stuff. So that over a period of time, we're always optimizing, we're cutting away waste and we're doing more of what works. We're introducing new things that we perhaps haven't tried. We're always experimenting, but it's also a valuable tool that you can apply to your own life in the sense that, hey, here's what I should start doing, stop doing. Hey, here's what's not really working for me. Perhaps I I need to stop doing this. Perhaps I need to be more of a friend to these people, whatever the case is, but being objective with that and just taking the time out to stop and reflect as Mark Twain urged us to do and and actually act on those reflections, I think just helps us get get to a place where we're just living more contented lives. All right. And how about a favorite habit? Just getting started to the most difficult thing first thing in the morning, whatever that, whatever it is. It might be a gym workout. It might be writing a 1,500-word article. could be anything. But I find that if I start my day achieving something, then that kind of permeates the rest of my day in a way. And not only that, but it, there is something to be said about the dopamine release that comes with accomplishment, that it comes with achieving something, and that puts you in a better state of mind as well, which then in turn... Uh, impacts how you show up with people around you and impacts the energy that you bring to the rest of your work. So, uh, you know, for me, that all just starts with making my bed first thing in the morning and then going from there. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? They quote it back to you frequently? Focus on what you can control, not what you can't control. I think that's a big one. Mm -hmm. So often people don't delineate between the two and find themselves getting wrapped up with what they can't control. And that's really putting yourself in a place of victimhood narrative. There's nothing you can do about that other than make yourself feel like crap. So really delineate between the two and, and focus on influencing uh, what you can control and stuff that you can't control. Well, there's no point you know, working yourself up over it because it's essentially outside of your locus of control. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? I'd point them to steveglaveski.com. Uh, that's G-L-A-V-E-S-K-I. They can find all of my Links to businesses, social media, books, all that sort of stuff over there. And if they want to learn more about TimeReach, they can do so at timereachbook.com. They can download the first chapter for free, as well as a 30-page document of TimeReach tools over at timereachbook.com. Okay. Steve, it's a bit of a treat. I wish you all the best in being time rich. Thank you so much, Pete. It's been an absolute pleasure. 
The thing that really stuck with me the most from my chat with Steve here is that notion of focusing on the task within the task. So there's writing, but what's happening inside the writing. And I think about that a lot in terms of, hey, there's research, like, oh, I'm researching potential guests. But I think that if you get even clearer, it sharpens the focus in terms of, I am watching a video of Steve speaking in order to assess how engaging he is. And just articulating that, even in your mind's ear, not your mind's eye, subvocalizing it for a moment, can, I found already, marshal an extra dose of focus because it's sort of unmissable, unmistakable, exactly that laser-focused bullseye target of what is the zone of your focus. Not a broad, generalized activity, but the task within the task. That's stuck with me. Hope you found it helpful. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP621. I recommend you push subscribe if you haven't already or if Apple Podcasts app has told you you've stopped getting new episodes because it's been a while since you played one. Happens with the best of us. Hop back in. You'll hear from our next guest, Kirsty Bortoft, has some pro tips on handling stress. Hope to catch you there. And peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.